Sarah, oh, okay, it is on. Um, how many people, anybody here was here last month? Okay. I just want to apologize for something I said last month. I'm sorry. So if you don't know what I'm apologizing, I don't want to tell everybody because then it'd be saying, all right, it, it, was, it was referring to like behavior that we might have done in high school and, and like sort of excusing that. And it was like within 24 hours, I realized that that wasn't really okay. So if now, if you know what I'm talking about, good. If you don't, it's really, it really doesn't matter. But uh, it's in accordance with uh, this month's theme as a 10th step. So I'm making amends. Uh, I could, uh, you know, um, did someone say they can't hear me or they said, what did they say? I said thank you. You said thank you. And th- oh, thank you, by the way, for your help with the, uh, I, yeah. You love all this cryptic stuff. <laughs> and uh, those are people who I spent the week with last week. So how about that? No, that was a retreat. Um, they're sitting together so that their energy will like, really like, so if you want to get high, go sit near them. I mean, like, legally high. I mean, it's not that it's not legal, anyway. Um, we had a great retreat, didn't we? I, it was really the best for me, amazingly enough. I mean, I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, we had 36 people, I think, and uh, people went away happy, so... We're going to have another retreat in the spring. It's going to be a silent retreat uh, at the same place. It's a, a Tibetan center down in the Santa Cruz Mountains. I'll have flyers for that soon. And then we'll do it again, the Buddhism 12-step retreat again next October. So, um, I thought there was something else I was going to say. Maybe not. Um, I will be here uh, on the 28th of October for a day long based on my new book, called Living Kindness, Buddhist Teachings for a Troubled World. So uh, I hope you'll come for that. That'll be my, yeah, I I was going to say my last, uh, I'm going to also do a day long at the end of the year. We do my Keep Coming Back day long, which is kind of like the beginning of the year, but it's, you know, it comes at the end of December. But, uh, yeah, so uh, I guess that's it. Uh, I like to, warm up the audience a little bit just with um, irrelevant things to just confuse you so that when you start meditating you'll be just like, what? What was he talking about? Um, it's better than what you were already thinking, which would be like, you know, so it's kind of trying to divert you from your, your typical, you know, self-destructive, self-hatred. No, it's not. I'm sorry, I might be, I might be channeling myself, I don't know. Um, uh, t- this is uh, Parents Weekend at UC Berkeley. I bought a new hat. For those who don't know, my daughter is a student at UC Berkeley, so I have to invest in clothing to fit the role. I have a cow, you know, bump, um, license plate uh, thing. Anyway, you got to enjoy these things when they come because they're short and they're, they, they're over. And then if you didn't show up, you missed out. Um, so uh, we're going to meditate, in case you didn't know. Um, sooner or later. Oh, I was going to actually have a new project in mind, but I might not fulfill it. What I did, what I, I want to start, I'm going to, oh, that's not it. 
Well, maybe I didn't bring it. Never mind. I was going to start recording myself. They record me, but uh, anyway. Um, I took an old phone and I just deleted all the apps except the recording app because you can, the phone is useless otherwise. So then I'm going to like record some of my talks and stuff and maybe, you know, just turn it in, into something. I have to do something because uh, people keep saying, what are you doing? Uh, and if I'm not doing anything, you know, then they think I'm a loser. So and that's bad. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, sorry. Really, really. Uh, Eleven o'clock tonight. The uh, you have a, this your HBO set to record the Pod Save America show on HBO. You guys don't listen to Pod Save America. Who here knows what Pod Save America is? Okay, who here is registered to vote? Okay, good. That's the important part. Pod Save America is a podcast by three former Obama staffers, and it's, it's both informative and entertaining. Uh, and they, HBO decided to have, a, have them on TV. So they're on tonight at 11. Uh, if you have HBO, you can probably, you know, Get it from your neighbor or something, but uh, but they're they're you know they're funny, but they're smart and they're really uh, progressive and um, it's going to be good. So uh, that's what I'm doing at eleven tonight. If I can stay up that late. All right, we really we're going to meditate. Uh, just what? Oh, you wanted to get it from me? I, yeah, I mean I don't know how to give it to you. You know. I can come over to my house, you know, that's about it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we're going to meditate, because what if we didn't? What if I just kept talking and we never... Boy, would people be pissed. They'd be like, I want my money back. I didn't come here to listen to that guy. No, wait, I did come here to listen to, But not to what he was saying, you know. I came here to listen to some Dharma. What is Dharma? Okay, anyway. Uh, okay, let's meditate. So... Uh, So we begin by just becoming aware of being in a body, by feeling just that essence of life, of a body. Nothing exotic or mystical. Very simple. When you close your eyes, what what does your body feel like? It doesn't really feel like one thing. Many different sensations. In some ways the body can feel like just a kind of energetic space. You can feel the weight of the body. Maybe notice that. Just notice how your body has weight and density. You can feel the temperature of the body. 
Different places in the body might have different temperatures, your feet, your hands, your face. Parts of the body that are covered with clothing, cool, warm, neutral. You can feel the movement within the body, the pulsing of the blood, the breath moving through the body. So all of this is what it means to be aware of your body. We sit in stillness as much as possible because stillness helps us to attune our attention. Even as the body sits still, the mind keeps moving. Even though we are sitting still, the body itself is in motion. The blood flowing. Cells being born and dying. Nerves sending impulses, information to the brain. So much activity, even in stillness. And just letting the body settle, having a sense of ease, of release. Nothing to do, nowhere to go. Just being, being here. Opening awareness to sound, even in the silence there is sound, just as in stillness there is motion. Sound from outside, sounds from the building, from other people, sounds from your own body. Sounds in your ears. Mindfulness begins with this this simple awareness of body, of sound. Different elements of experience.
can you tune into mood? How are you feeling? Meditation doesn't guarantee a good mood or good feelings. Mindfulness is to see clearly, not to manipulate. Can you accept whatever mood is present without trying to fix it? Finally arriving at the breath. Feeling the touch sensation of air at the nostrils. In and out. Feeling the movement of chest and belly. And then letting the attention land on one point of sensation in the breath. Where can you feel it most clearly? Whether it's the air touching the nose, or the belly rising and falling. The breath becomes our anchor to the present moment. Even still, the mind wanders. Doesn't like to stop moving. So even as we try to focus on the breath, thoughts will drift through. Thoughts will carry us away. So when we notice, we come back gently with kindness.
that this is our practice. To return over and over. Gently tame the mind. We start to feel more agitated or disturbed. That agitation itself becomes the focus. Take the attention to the feeling of agitation or the feeling of disturbance. Breathe with that. Allow that. Don't struggle. This is the art of meditation, to make effort without striving. To let go without pushing it away. To embrace without clinging.
Notice if you get restless. See if you can breathe into the restlessness. Just relax, allow it to be there as energy in the body. Or perhaps you get sleepy, dull. You try to brighten the mind. Look more closely at the breath. Nothing stays the same as we meditate. We don't just arrive at some meditative state. So it requires a vigilance. The ongoing changing experiences. Nothing is outside the realm of mindfulness. Everything is included. Every sensation, every mood, every thought can be noticed, can be held with wakefulness, clarity, interest.
So uh, I usually take some time for questions about practice at this time. Uh, anything uh, come up for anybody they wanted to ask about? Yeah. It's a good, a good thing to talk about because it really is kind of at the heart of practice. Um, so what it really it really takes is that we have to. Uh, so we we're using this quality of mindfulness of of, a, of paying attention, and we kind of the you know the, we have this primary focus of the breath although it can be any other experience. But we, we need to also apply mindfulness to the effort we're making. Uh, because if we are like working really hard to try to hold on to the breath, then we're actually working against the whole pr- purpose of what we're doing. So it's kind of at the heart of Buddhist meditation is the idea of letting go. So if we are trying to hold on or we are grasping at something, then we're, we're going against the whole point of what we're doing. So it's, it's natural uh, to do that, to strive, because effort uh, certainly implies some kind of striving, uh, and so right effort, which is the term in the Eightfold Path, is something else. And it's, and it's really something we, we have to discover for ourselves. It's not something that can exactly be defined. I mean, we can, we can point to it, but it's really a felt experience. And, and so typically when people start to meditate, they're trying too hard. And then at a certain point, they kind of, you kind of realize, oh, like my body is tense or, or I'm, I'm getting into this attitude that, oh, I'm not doing this right or it's not happening the way I want it to or I expect it to. And you realize, oh, that you're kind of on this uh, a typical uh, ambitious kind of approach to meditation, which again doesn't make any sense. So... And we have to uh, find this kind of balance where there's engagement, but it's not driven, essentially the, the essence of it is that it's not driven by self, or it's not driven by an idea that I am going to accomplish something. You know, it's rather more like an artist or a musician who's just in a flow, and they're making an effort to play or to paint or to you know, do their work, but they're not thinking, this is my song that I'm playing and everybody's going to love it. You know, that's not happening. It's, it's this uh, creative engagement. Meditation is a creative process, and uh, very much because of that quality of flow or kind of trying to connect with... Um, the, this organic process, because what, what we're doing isn't really uh, a contrived thing. Like to pay attention and to be present 
is a natural human capacity, and it's actually a natural human longing. We want, we want to be here. This, this is life. Uh, it just gets interrupted by everything else. So it's kind of a matter of... of uh, so this is why we practice meditation. You practice, and one of the things that you can do is tune into, like, am I making too much effort, or am I not making enough effort? So the one image the Buddha gives that I think points to this well is the idea of tuning a stringed instrument. That if you tune it too tight, you're striving, and it's... Ping, and the string breaks, you know. But if you tune it down, it's just nothing, no sound. So we're, we're trying to find that middle place where, it, where we are in tune, which is also a really good metaphor for what we're doing. We're kind of in tune with this moment. We're in tune with our body, in tune with our mind. So it's really just that kind of exploration. And so, as I say, to kind of apply some of your attention not just to the breath, but to the quality of your effort. Yeah, thanks for that question. Anything else? Yeah. Think about shifting focus during a single meditation from something like following the breath to a more diffused awareness, and maybe a little bit of meta mixed in, mm-hmm. better just to sort of take something and stick with it. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's another... A good question, because it, as you're kind of implying, there's there's sort of a risk in in that if it's sort of you're hopping around trying to find the thing that's going to click. But on the other hand, there is an another aspect of the art of practice is is to pay attention to what is kind of called for in a given moment. So if the mind is really disturbed, you want to do something that's going to settle the mind. So more of a concentration practice, breath or counting breaths or something, you know, something very um, uh, mechanical or methodical. But then you can kind of when uh, you can kind of get to a point where that starts to feel like just work or something, and and you know you you're kind of relaxed and settled, and you don't really feel like sort of doing this circular thing and so you kind of go okay I'm just going to let go of that and move into a more open space so those two things I think are very natural to move between metta again is something that you would particularly like oh a kind of feeling that oh there's kind of this uh, calling for that whether it's a negative feeling internally that you're kind of oh I'm really really getting into hostility towards that person. Let me just let that go and do some metta for them. There's kind of that. Uh, but there's also times when there's, there's just like an innate kind of connection with the heart where you kind of feel like, oh, and it, maybe you're not even doing metta phrases, but you're kind of just like connecting with that feeling. Um, so I actually, uh, I actually don't oppose that. But some meditation teachers would would say otherwise. So once again, it comes back on you to be responsible to like, well, what what's happening? How is is this working, or am I just creating more restlessness? Right. So uh, you know, I, I like to say that you know, there's nobody in there meditating with you. 
You know, like as much as you listen to teachers or even have a guided meditation, you're having your internal experience and you ultimately have to be your own teacher. And you, le- you become your own teacher by listening to teachers, asking questions, reading, and practicing and experimenting with the things you've heard and seeing what works for you. You know, a lot of teachers will say, oh, this is the way to practice. And it's just because that was what worked for them, you know, rather than, well, see what works for you, you know. And that's my attitude. Like, I'll offer a variety of practices, uh, but ultimately I leave it, I think it's up to the individual to discover what's working for them. Uh, You know, so, so really to answer the question in a more specific way, if you intentionally are moving between practices for a purpose that's clear in your mind. That makes sense. If you're finding that you're just like, oh, I'm kind of sick of this, let me find something else to do, then you realize, oh, this is just restlessness. So that's what you would want to check with, with what your intention is. Yeah, thanks. Good questions. Um, so yeah, let's let's take a break. It's eight o'clock now. We'll take about ten minutes, and then we'll come back and have a talk. I mean, I'll give a talk. <laughs> we won't have a talk.
Oh, the the uh, first mindfulness exercise that, that they use with with kids is they have them. They say, "We're going to ring the bell, and when you can't hear it anymore, then raise your hand." And with a bell like this, that means that they're quiet for like twenty seconds, which is like a miracle in itself, right? It's actually still going. And then the kids are all coming up and they're like sticking their heads in the bed. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> thinking about step 10, uh, it was too bad we didn't record the talk last month. Oh, I'd like to been harassing Sarah about forgetting to record it, but she's not here to harass. Uh, and does anybody remember what, who was here last month? Do you remember what I talked about? Anybody remember those two words? Oh, man. You weren't here, were you? Yeah, but you know what it was. Yeah, she's such a goody-goody, you know. Hiri and Otapa. Yeah. Don't ask. So, um, well, just, you know, uh, for those who uh, haven't got their 12 steps with you, uh, you know, step nine says we may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Step 10 says we continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Um, So what's apparent is that immediately upon having done a, make an, made amends, we're then told we have to continue to make amends, which is a really, I think, important point that where the steps are telling us, that's when it becomes apparent that the steps are not going to be just a one, once and done process, that they're an ongoing process. And so step 10, in a sense, encapsulates the whole process between steps four through nine. I mean, it, it's certainly uh, four, five, and, and nine at least, but it's basically that process of, of recognizing our mistakes and, and uh, trying to make, make amends for them. And I, I think for, for me, uh, and I said something about this last month, for me, step 10 is more significant in the long run than step nine, because step nine is kind of the what you do after you've done your inventory and you kind of have this list of people you hurt and, you, and it's hard I mean you know to go back and try to uh, apologize or make do something to make up for harming people but um, once you've done it it's it's doesn't mean that much that's that is you can't sort of take it with you <laughs> if you will and, and that's what step 10 is is like you take it with you so so yeah, all right, you've made amends, but does you know just because you've done this process four through nine, does that mean you're never going to do something stupid again? Like good luck with that. Right? So, so it, it it's really a key uh, step for me, and and I think one of the most important ones for me uh, is step ten. Uh, you know, like if you're going to have a successful long-term relationship you've got to be able to practice step 10 pretty much on a regular basis. Um, 
and it and then it's kind of introducing these last three steps it's kind of the beginning of the of this final process uh, that we can talk about over the next couple months um, and, and there's there is something just about the the word prompt that we promptly admitted it uh, that we stay current you know this idea that we don't kind of keep go back and accumulate more uh, harm and more amends that we have to make that you know could could easily cause relapse. Um, so I, I wanted to bring out uh, one of the great suttas uh, from the Majjhima Nikaya tonight. Uh, that's it's very um, it's it's talked about a lot in the tradition. And it, it was interesting, I was talking to a friend, a Dharma teacher this evening, uh, before, in the late afternoon, I should, guess I should say, who called, and I said, oh, I'm going to talk about Angulimala tonight. And he said, oh, that's great. And I was like, and the backstory. And he was like, the backstory? What's the backstory? And I was like, you have to go to the back of the book to find the backstory. So the sutta is actually here. Sutta number 86 is 152. But the very beginning of the sutta, so some of the notes in this book are you know, very technical, but this one, I'm going to read this to you. So, so first of all, Angulimala, so it says, the name is an epithet meaning garland of fingers, or it's like a necklace of fingers. He was the son of the Brahmin Bhagava, chaplain to King Pasanadi of Kosala, Everybody knows King Pasanati, right? Okay, he's one of my favorites. Anyway, sorry. His given name was Ahimsaka, meaning harmless one. So you might know that word, Ahimsa. No? Okay, well, you learn something every day. It's non-harming. He studied at Takasila. So there was this university kind of in, in ancient India called Takasila. And um, Stephen Batchelor, the great Buddhist teacher and scholar, uh, says even though there's no record of it, he believes that the Buddha probably studied there, which you know is interesting if you get into the implications. He studied at Takasila where he became his teacher's favorite. His fellow students, jealous of him, told the teacher that Ahimsaka had committed adultery with his wife. Now this is like soap opera stuff, right? Yeah. It's the good student. Everybody gets jealous. So they go and they lie. To the t- oh, he's screwing your wife. Man. The teacher, intent on bringing Ahimsaka to ruin, meaning like to ruin his karma so that he'll, his life will be ruined, commanded him to bring him a thousand human right-hand fingers as an honorarium. I mean, what an order. I can't go through with it. Uh, I, I won't go through it. But, you know, this is like, you know, he's devoted to his teacher, and, his t- and this is like a spiritual teacher, supposedly, right? He's studying, like, I don't know precisely, but some kind of religious teachings. And, you know, it's kind of like, drink this Kool-Aid, right? It's kind of like, oh, we're going to ride on this comet, or, you know, the kind of cult, it's kind of cult treatment, right? And you're totally like, oh, this is my guru, I must do what he says. 
So it says, Ahimsaka lived in the Jalini forest, attacking travelers, cutting off a finger of each and wearing them as a garland around the neck. You don't usually get this kind of violence. I mean, I like the you know, simile of the saw. You might, anyway, oh, sorry. Uh, at the time the sutta opens, he was one short of a thousand and made a determination to kill the next person to come along. The Buddha saw that Angulimala's mother was on her way to visit him. <laughs> like, what? Oh, how are you, son? Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> Don't, how do you like my new necklace? So the Buddha saw this, and he was aware that Angulimala had the supporting conditions for arhantship, which is enlightenment. He intercepted him shortly before his mother was due to arrive. So the point is that... so. Angulimala, formerly Ahimsaka, was actually very evolved spiritually. He'd, and that's why he was such a good student to the teacher. But like some of us, at a certain point, he kind of took a wrong turn. You know. I'm not going to say he was addicted to cutting people's fingers off, but 999 is a little excessive. <laughs> I'll, I'll just say, like, this name is, I, I just find the name interesting. So, uh, last month, I was reading from another collection of suttas called the Anguttara Nikaya, which is called the Numerical Discourses. So, his name is Anguli Mala. So, what I infer from that, and I don't know much about Pali, the language, but Angu is like about numbers, but like digits. Right, because in English, a digit can be both a number and a finger. So the Anguttara Nikaya is the numerical discourses, and Angulimala is a necklace full of fingers. So you know what a mala is, right? The, the, some of you are probably wearing them. So there you go. There's your Pali lesson for the evening. So typically, the sutta begins with the Buddha is uh, guess where he is in Savati in Jetis Grove, not a Pindicus Park, his favorite place to hang out. So it, it, then it just tells the story. Now, on that occasion, there was a bandit in the realm of King Pasanati named Angulimala, who was murderous, bloody-handed, and, people, and he's like he's like a terrorist basically, and people are just freaked out by him. And he's depicted. Uh, there's other. There's some other writing about him. He's depicted as this really massive, powerful person, really strong, and um, that he would attack like groups of people and kill them all. Uh, I don't know how, but I think they maybe blew it, blew up his reputation later on. But uh, and so the, the Buddha says. Um, you know, he, he, he decides he's going to, you know, head to, to find Angulimala. And he's riding, walking along, and all these people are telling him, don't go that way, do not take this road. Angulimala's down there. And they keep telling him, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll be okay. Uh, he just walks along in silence. So, uh, so and we know that, his, that Angulimala's mother is also kind of, you know, heading this way. So the Buddha has to get there before her. Because if you kill your parent, even if you have all these spiritual qualities, you're done. Then you go to hell. And, and you don't, you, it takes a really long time to get out of hell in Buddhism. Uh, if you kill your parent or you kill, kill a guru or an enlightened being, it's just, you're done. So, um, 
So Angulimala sees the Buddha and he's like, this is great. Like I've had to deal with these big crowds of people. Here's this one little monk. This should be no problem. Uh, Angulimala then took up his sword and shield, buckled on his bow and quiver and followed close behind the Blessed One. Then the Blessed One, this is the term they use for the Buddha. I don't particularly care for it, but there, there it is. It reminds me of other religions that I'm not as in favor of. Then the Blessed One performed such a feat of supernormal power that the bandit Angulimala, though walking as fast as he could, could not catch up with the Blessed One, who was walking at his normal pace. Then the bandit Angulimala thought, It is wonderful, it is marvelous. Formerly I could catch up with a swift elephant and seize it. I could catch up with a swift horse. I could catch up with a swift chariot. I could catch up with a swift deer. I mean, you can see this guy's fast, right? He he really should have been on the Olympic something team. But though I am walking as fast as I can, I cannot catch up with this recluse who is walking at his normal pace. He stopped and called out to the Blessed One, Stop, recluse, stop. Buddha says, I have stopped, Amgulimala. You stop too. Then the Angulimala thought, these recluses, these sons of the Sakyans speak truth. But though this recluse is still walking, he says, I have stopped, Angulimala. You stop too. Suppose I question this recluse. So it's, I always think of it as like, you know, deep down inside him, he's still got this spiritual longing that's been, you know, pushed aside and kind of forgotten over these presumably years to, that he's been out there killing people, but something resonates inside him. He's like, wait, this guy, I think he's telling me something. So, and so then he asks the Buddha, what, what do you mean? You know, how is it that you have stopped and I have not, even though you know, um, I'm just standing here. And the Buddha says, Angulimala, I have stopped forever. I abstain from violence toward living beings. But you have no restraint toward things that live. That is why I have stopped and you have not. So it's metaphorical stopping, right? He's stopped harming any beings. And this wakes up Angulimala. It just penetrates. He says... At long last, this recluse, this venerated sage, has come to this great forest for my sake. He actually, a note in the back says he actually realizes that it's the Buddha because he had heard about him. Having heard your stanza teaching, teaching me the Dhamma, I will indeed renounce evil forever. So saying, the bandit took his sword and weapons and flung them into a gaping chasm's pit. The bandit worshipped the sublime one's feet and then and there asked, by the going forth. The going forth is what's called entering into being a monastic, becoming a monk. The enlightened one, the sage of great compassion, the teacher of the world with all its gods, addressed him with these words, come bhikkhu. And that was how he came to be a bhikkhu. So bhikkhu is the word for monk in Pali. And in in early times when the Buddha was first teaching, there was no ordination process. Like today, there's a fairly you know, complex process of ordination. In those days, the Buddha just said, come, come, you're a monk. 
So, you know, that's really the beginning of the story, I, I should say, particularly as it relates to step 10. But, you know, it's, it's pretty striking already, and it really sp- speaks to how we see the, the power of the Buddha as a teacher uh, and, and as an uh, in inspiration, that his very presence, and we see this throughout the suttas, there are times when people just encounter him when he doesn't even speak. You know, but when they're completely kind of blown away, and he'll just say a few words, and they, you know, the dust is removed from their eyes. So, and as in the in my more favored suttas, uh, like this one, it's really there are like different scenes. So, as you know, I, I write fiction as well, and. And so I, I, I really like it when there's kind of a narrative and you can see this like played out. There's probably a movie. So somebody must have done a movie in India of this. So, so it's kind of like, okay, fade out. You know, the you know, Mala is now walking with the Buddha and he he's walks with him back to Savati. So they're back at Savati and, and Angulimala now would have shaved his head and put on the robes. So he just looks like any other monk, except for those bulging biceps. And but word has gotten out in Sabati that like Angulimala is somewhere around, and people are kind of freaking out. And King Pasnati uh, hears about this, and um, and he he goes to the Buddha, and and he's kind of asking him for help about it. Um, and and so the, you see, the king has come. When the king comes, and you know, with his retinue, and, and but when he gets to the monastery, he has to like get off his out of his chariot or whatever, and kind of walk up and pay homage to the Buddha. And he's sitting in front of the Buddha, and there's a bunch of monks around. And he and you know, and he's expressing his anxiety about the fact that this dangerous killer is on the loose. Um. And this is what the Buddha says. He says, um, Great king, suppose you were to see that Angulimala had shaved off his hair and beard, put on the yellow robe, and gone forth from the home life into homelessness, that he was abstaining from killing living beings, from taking what is not given, from false speech, from refraining from eating at night, you know, all these monastic behaviors. If you were to see him thus, how would you treat him? And this is really interesting because... This is where we get to the kind of the sort of theme of this um, sutta, because I'm not sure that you know certainly in our culture we don't have the same veneration for someone who just is a monk or has taken on a spiritual life. He's known to have killed 999 people, but when the Buddha says, "If you saw that he had ordained as a monk, what would you do?" and this is what Pasanadi says, Venerable Sir, we would pay homage to him or rise up for him or invite him to be seated. We would invite him to accept robes, alms food, a resting place, or medicinal requisites. Or we would arrange for him lawful guarding, defense, and protection. We would actually protect him, right? We wouldn't just grab him and throw him in jail, right? We would take care of him because that's how much they respected uh, the, the monks. Now, on that occasion, 
Well, and, and, but he says, how could he ever have such virtue and restraint? Now, on that occasion, the venerable Angulimala was sitting not far from the Blessed One. And the Blessed One extended his right arm and said to King Pasnati, Great King, this is Angulimala. Then King Pasnati was frightened, alarmed, and terrified. Knowing this, the Blessed One told him, Do not be afraid. There is nothing for you to fear from him. Then the king's fear, alarm, and terror subsided, as it does when the Buddha says, don't worry, you know, you're kind of relaxed, right? Oh, okay, chill. He went over to the Venerable Angulimala. Like, you know, I can see him like going, Venerable Sir, is the noble lord really Angulimala? Yes, great king, says Angulimala. And then he asks him about his family, and then, then uh, King Pasanadi says, well, all right, well then we're going to take care of you. We're going to give you robes and do all this stuff, give you food. And, um, and of course then, uh, as, as King Pasanati is getting ready to leave, he says, you know, he tells the Buddha, it is wonderful and marvelous how the Blessed One tames the untamed, brings peace to the unpeaceful, leads to Nibbana, those who have not attained Nibbana. Venerable Sir, we ourselves could not tame him with force and weapons. Yet, the Blessed One has tamed him without force and weapon, or weapons. And then Pasnati leaves the scene. So, and now we're getting into it, right? That What we're getting from this, like, first of all, this is a, a teaching on nonviolence, obviously, <laughs> but, uh, but the power of nonviolence, the power of the Buddha's nonviolence. And that, that then becomes even more emphasized as the Sutta goes on. Um, so it says, when it was morning, Angulimala dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe went into Savati for alms. As he was wandering for alms from house to house in Savati, he saw a certain woman giving birth to a deformed child. And this is like really a twist, right? Like plot wise. Like what? What does that have to do with it, this story? When he saw this, he thought, how beings are afflicted. And he goes back to the Buddha and he says, you know, as I was wandering for alms in Savati, I saw this woman giving birth to a deformed child. And the Buddha says to him, in that case, Angulimala, go into Savati and say to that woman, Sister, since I was born, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well, and may your infant be well. Well, that seems like a very odd thing to say to Angulimala, that, that through the good karma of the fact that you've never taken anybody's life. But wait, so <laughs> Angulimala says, uh, Venerable Sir, wouldn't I be telling a deliberate lie? For I have intentionally deprived living beings of life, many living beings of life. So the Buddha says, okay, then go into Savati and say to that woman, since I was born with the noble birth, and the noble birth is actually awakening, enlightenment, but entering into the path and, and, and becoming a monk. Since I was born in, with the noble birth, I do not recall ever intentionally depriving a living being of life. So, Angulimala then goes back to Savati and he says to the woman, 
Just the sister, since I was born with the noble birth, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well and may your infant be well. Then the woman and the infant became well. So it's this kind of miracle that Angulimala has performed. Now, here, it, 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 at first it seems like a twist, but what's really interesting here is that, well, this phrase then that Angulimala spoke is now a traditional prayer for pregnant women in Buddhist countries. So Angulimala, the mass murderer, has become the protector of pregnant women, which is this kind of beautiful turning around of his karma, right? Here's the person who was killing people, and now he's the one who protects the, the ones being born. But that's not the end of the story. At this point, then, Angulimala does go through. Here's where he actually attains enlightenment by realizing for himself direct knowledge here and now entered upon and abided in the supreme goal of the holy life. Then we have one more scene, and this is kind of the one that's the climax and the one that's most often referred to. He says, he goes back to Savati for alms the next day. Now on that occasion, someone threw a clod and hit the venerable Angulimala's body. Someone else threw a stick and hit his body. Someone else threw a pot shard and hit his body. Then with blood running from his cut head, with his bowl broken and his outer robe torn, the venerable Angulimala went to the Blessed One. The Blessed One saw him coming in the distance and said, Bear it, Brahman, bear it. You are experiencing here and now the result of deeds because of which you might have been tortured in hell for many years, for many hundreds of years, for many thousands of years. So this line, bear it, Angulimala, is a famous line. And so what we're, it, it, it kind of this, you know, layered message we're getting. First of all, we get the message that redemption is possible, right? We get that loud and clear in this sutta, that a mass murderer, if he turns it over, you know, and sets his life straight, can, reco- can recover, can, can become enlightened, can uh, a spiritual uh, being. But that doesn't mean he gets to escape from what he did. He still has to bear some consequence for it. You know, It's like, okay, you got sober, but you know, you still got those debts. You still have to pay them off. Right? You still, or you, you've harmed people. They're not just going to say, oh, you stopped drinking, great. Like, I'm happy, you know, I'm happy that you're, so, you know, you got sober and you're cleaning up your life, but you know, the damage you did still harms us, right? So people are still angry with him. But the long-term effects, and, and there's a, a footnote here where it says that, you know, literally, like, he would have gone into the hell realms had the Buddha not intervened. Um, 
And that's, you know, part of the Buddhist cosmology is that there's hell realms that are very similar to what we see in the, uh, like, Christian uh, version of hell. The main difference being that the hell realms in Buddhism, you're, it's temporary. You're only there for, like, 10 or 20,000 years. And then, you, and then you get out, you know. Then you get to be like a cockroach for a while, you know, and, and work your way back up. So it's it's a you know an, an interesting story and and I think it's important to take it all in because it's not uh, if it can be it's sometimes just delivered as this simple like oh he killed people then he met the Buddha and then uh, you know he was forgiven but but the, the layers of it I think are, are important to me they're important and, and interesting. Um, you know, and, and just the idea that he was on a spiritual path, but he got diverted, really resonates for me and and many people that I encounter who, you know, fall into addiction, even though they had a good heart, you know, even though they were trying to be a good person and maybe were, you know, trying to live a spiritual life, but you know, we kind of get off track. Um, but you know, in, in coming back, that we can really, it's kind of like the promises in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, like we will not regret the past, no wish to shut the door on it. We will come to see how our the past can benefit others. You know. And that's kind of what I'm seeing in Angulimala, that he's, you know, that his becoming the sort of patron saint of pregnant women is kind of his way of making amends for everything that he did. And it's, it's like uh, he turned, he turned um, what had happened in the past into something positive. You know? um, so um, it's interesting to me too that the Buddha keeps calling him Angulimala <laughs> like, because he could have like said, oh, we'll call you Ahimsaka now. <laughs> you know, we'll go back to your old name. But it's kind of like he just—he doesn't quite like. I'm not quite letting you off the hook. You're still Angulimala, you know, even though you got rid of your mala. You know, you're still that guy. Um, and it, and, but it's also striking too when we 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 see all these different sides of the Buddha. You know, his compassionate side, but also his ferocious side, like. You know, he's a guy who says, this guy has potential. I'm going to go out and I'm going to risk my life. Maybe he knew that he could turn him, but still. You know, I'm going to put myself out there out of compassion for this one guy who really nobody has compassion for. You know, nobody's on the side of Angulimala. Like, everybody's like, don't go there. You know, we're just, we just want to capture him and kill him, put him in jail or whatever. The Buddha's like, no, there's something good in him. I know that. So he goes out and he does that for him. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, in a way, I see the Buddha as being kind of a trickster with King Pasanadi by saying, well, what if he were, you know, a monk? You know, oh, we would take care of him. Well, there he is. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, you know, like he could have, the Buddha could have introduced Angulimala in a, in a more subtle way, you know, than, than saying, oh, he's right there, you know. Uh, so he's kind of, 
playing with the king in a way. But then, uh, again, that final thing where he says it bared on Gulimala. That's the tough love, right? That's not, doesn't seem very nice. You kind of think that he would say something like, oh, well, you know, you've had this bad karma, but that's okay, let me wash your cuts or something. You know, it's just like, he sees him coming, he's like, bared on Gulimala. You've got that, you know, you deserve that. Like, whoa, man, I thought you were the one who saved me. Yeah, well, I saved you, but, you know, you still killed all those people. So... It's a rich, rich sutta and uh, probably one of the ones that mo- that's most applicable to our whole uh, life of recovery, uh, to see that. And, and, uh, and ultimately, again, it's taught as a, a lesson to people that no matter how bad you think you are, you know, if, you have, if you are now on a path, a spiritual path, you know, uh, you're okay, you know. You're 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 worth it, you know. Um, and and you can, um, you know, make up for all that. So that didn't take as long as I thought it would. So we've got time for questions or observations, corrections. Yeah. Oh, it wasn't the king, it was his teacher. Yeah, that's a good question. We don't have that in the backstory. They don't, those guys are kind of left behind. They're like in Act One, and then they, we don't return to them. But I think you're right that, like, if we wrote it as a screenplay, at some point we should have, like, you know, something where he finds that out. And, and I, I see him with his stick, like, beating all the students who lied to him, you know, driving them out, you know. But I don't know, how was he treating his wife if he did this to Angulimala? Uh, I don't know. It's, comp- it's messy. Yeah. We'll have to talk. you get a good screenwriter for this. So was Angulimala born enlightened, you're saying? It, no, but, it, it, right, the implication in, in, in traditional Buddhist teachings is like, uh, spiritual development happens over lifetimes. The implication is that, yeah, he was already very evolved spiritually, um, and that's which is, of course, the same as the Buddha. You know, the Buddha supposedly had all these previous lifetimes where he developed all these qualities. So, so yeah, it wasn't that he was. I don't in in Buddhist. In, in this tradition, in the, in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, you can't be born enlightened because if you're enlightened, you don't get born any, get anymore. Yeah? You can just be born like ready to be enlightened. You know? Like you've evolved, but you didn't quite make it in your last lifetime. So, but the problem, of course, is that uh, even if you did evolve a long way in your last lifetime, you know, you're going to have to grow up and find a spiritual path and get going again, you know, you can't just like, you know, you pop out and you're like, okay, let's start chanting, you know. Uh, You've come out and you're you're in full lotus posture or something. Yeah, you you still have to go through childhood and all that stuff and grow up and find a path. It's, It's tough. Do you think there's any significance to that number, 999? 
Uh, it's the, the, a lot of the numbers in the sutras are just like uh, not meant to be literal. They uh, they'll say like there were five hundred elephants, and they just mean there were like a lot of elephants. <laughs> so uh, yeah, uh, or there were like a thousand monks, and it's like nobody was like taking tickets at the door. They don't they don't know how many monks were there. So it's just, it's, they like the round numbers, and, and you know, it's dramatic, like 999, so uh, it's, I, I, I don't think that you could even fit 999 fingers on a mala around your neck, so, uh, right, so, so logically, it, uh, you would have to have multiple malas, you know, no, it's pro- it probably was much lower number, yeah. But I mean, you know, once somebody's like killing a lot of people and putting them around their neck, you know, you're not like, uh, can I count the number on your neck? You know, you're like, okay, it's 999, all right? Like, whatever. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, although, right, because supposedly the, his teacher says a thousand, but, uh, you know, I'll say this. I think there was an Angulimala, and I think that he probably killed somebody. Beyond that, the rest of the story, it, the, there were screenwriters back in that day, in those days. That's all I can say. You know, they were, they were creative, creative storytellers. Uh, so I, I don't even know if the backstory is true, but I like it. So, yeah. Did he ever get called himself again? Not, uh, not in the suttas. No, yeah. And interestingly, <laughs> he says... At the very end of the sutta, he's got this whole like thing that he's doing, talking about himself. He says, um, where was it? Uh, oh yeah, he says, harmless, and that's in quotes, is the name I bear, which is Ahimsaka, though I was dangerous in the past. So, there's a note. And the note says, and this is now, this is the trouble with 2,500 year old texts. The note says, although one of the commentators says that Ahimsaka, harmless, was Anguli's given name, the commentary to the Teragata, which is another, like, says his original name was Himsaka, meaning dangerous. (laughs) So maybe if his name wasn't Ahimsaka, maybe it was. Himsika. So I'm sorry to confuse matters, but uh, so uh, because he says this, harmless is the name I bear, though I was dangerous in the past. The name I bear today is true. I hurt no living being at all. It's unknown. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, that makes sense. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. Um, that it seems like kind of karmically that it is this way for him to make amends, as you say. That I mean, how are you going to make amends? Oh, I'm really sorry I killed your mother, like thing, or I'm sorry I killed your wife, you know, your husband. It's like, yeah, well, <laughs> that, thanks for nothing. I mean. What kind of an amends is that? Like, you're sorry. Like, that doesn't really do anything. So, yeah, it's kind of like the living amends. Yeah, and, and that, uh, for, because amends, you know, uh, so many of them, uh, so many of the things we've done, just, you, you can't reverse the actions you've taken, you know. It's, you know, I'll, I'll say, it's also, the other one of the other things that's interesting about this is the idea of how does karma play out so there's a there's a note about karma in the, in the back that I'll, I'll read you um, uh, it says uh, any volitional action which is karma is capable of yielding three kinds of results a result to be experienced here and now in the same life in which it's committed, a result to be experienced in the next life, the next existence, it says, and a result to be experienced in any life subsequent. So you could have karma that could be, you know, either it happens now or it happens in your next life or it happens sometime in the future. Because he had attained arhantship, enlightenment, Angulimala had escaped the latter two types of result, but not the first since even arhats are susceptible to experiencing the present life results of actions they performed before attaining arhatship but the so so this is where you know there are these analyses of how karma works but they it's really risky when you get too much into like trying to figure them out but one of the things that's apparent is that there isn't just like a well, here, I'll, I'll apply it in this way. One of the uh, ancient understandings, and we see this in, in uh, sort of medieval Christianity as well, is that doing penance or doing ascetic practices will burn off karma. So the Buddha, when we know the stories of him trying to like starve himself and do all these really painful ascetic practices, there was an idea that if you did enough of that, you would like burn off all your bad karma and that, then you'd become enlightened. So it's a little bit like the, you know, the medieval priests wearing a hair shirt or self-flagellation and that stuff. If I, if I punish myself, then I'll be, you know, I'll get rid of all that, those sins. And, you know, right, there's sort of, this can filter into our brains in a less religious way as well, right? That we kind of beat ourselves up, you know? I mean, the very term, I, you beat yourself up, implies this kind of thing because it's like I did something wrong, so I'm going to beat myself up, and there's somehow like some logic in our mind that, oh, well, then, okay, I beat myself up like that makes up for it or something, you know? It's not like we really believe that or that we fit it together logically, but there's some impulse 
in us that if if I'm mean to myself, I like I deserve to be punished. Like, but then if I'm punished, doesn't that mean like okay, I'm done now? I I'm forgiven. But it, of course, it doesn't work that way because if you start punishing yourself, you just get into a cycle of self hatred, and uh, you know it doesn't really resolve in that way. So. So the Buddha realized in his own search, as he was doing this stuff to himself, that that actually didn't work. And what he discovered was that you can actually, there's no like one-to-one thing where you have to, you did this so you have to burn it off this way, or you have to somehow get rid of that karma. Karma doesn't quite work in that formulaic way. That actually, when, when you change, when you really change the movement of your life, that a lot of that karma can actually be left behind. And I, and I run into this question and this concern, and it was actually came up on the retreat last week, people kind of talking a little bit about how like, they almost didn't feel like they deserved their life to be so good when they think about all the things that they've done in the past, and yet their life's really good. And it's because we don't have to exactly pay the karmic debt for every stupid thing we did or every mean thing. It doesn't quite work like that. Karma is mysterious. We can't figure it out. And the Buddha said, if you try to figure out your karma, like, I'm going to go back and figure out, like, why did that happen because of all the... It's like some kind of karmic therapy session, you know. He says, if you try to do that, you'll actually go crazy, which doesn't really say much for therapists, but... It's a different thing. Therapy's different. We're not really trying to figure out karma. That was a bad joke. And, and please, any therapist, forgive me. I'm kidding. But the, but the larger point that trying to unravel it all, it just, just gets you more tangled up. And, and we have to just kind of... The main thing to know about karma is that you're making it right now. The only time you can affect it is right now. So pay, that's why we need to pay attention right now. Right? Because this is the, the next moment is going to be affected by right now. And, and so, but, but I think it's also, and, and I think it's embodied in this sutta, the idea, you know, the fact that some people threw a rocket at uh, Angulimala doesn't seem like enough penance for killing 999 people. And, and we see that, that, that it's not a one-to-one correlation, that we don't have to, you know, pay off every karmic debt. In the same way that sometimes it seems like we're paying more of a karmic debt, you know, when things really go bad in our life, or you get really sick, or, you know, uh, things catch up with you. It's like, wow, it wasn't that bad, like, you know... Um, uh, okay, I'm not going to make a joke because I see several of them sitting there, but I'm not going to get them. Uh, you know that that you know you, maybe you did something that seemed relatively minor, but somehow you really get into a lot of trouble for it. And you're like, wow, I've done worse things than that, but that now I'm getting busted for this. You know, I used to be dealing, you know, kilos, and now I just got busted for like, you know, one gram. Like, that's a good example. You know, because you know. Um, that people can relate to, you know. So, you know, it's just, I think we we sometimes kind of come for 
those kind of answers like, well, what's the karmic debt? What do I have to pay? And how do I, you know, what do I have to do like to get through it? And it's like, no, you know, what you need to do is just turn and move forward, you know, make a decision to turn your will and your life over and take those actions. You don't have to, you know, when you write your inventory and you make your amends, you're not really taking care of all that stuff. That stuff is all back there. It's like, you know, and you can't even remember half of it, you know, if you're like me, you know. Uh, um, you know, it's just there. And uh, so, I don't know. Deep thoughts, as they used to say on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so I just one concept that um, seems really relevant to the 12 steps that seems like it kind of floats through that story you know, so when he's like practicing his tough love, when the Buddha's practicing bear his tough love and saying, um, you know, bear it. Um, in a lot of ways, it, it seems like it's like, we'll be grateful. Yeah, that that's right. You're not, that's, that this is all that happened. Uh, exactly. You know, jails, institutions, death, whatever. Yep. Didn't happen to you. And it almost seems like that seems like, like the, the students that you were talking about in the retreat who are having these great lives feel that, oh, maybe my consequences should have been harsher. Yeah. Um, it's like the flip side of that is to, well, notice, okay, look, I did all these things, and here I am sitting in this room in this meditation hall. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of things are still going right, even though yeah. I've fucked up a bunch of my life, right? Um, so the flip side of that is the gratitude piece. Yeah. You know, so you can notice look, these other people have way harsher consequences. Yeah. Um, which I see a lot. Yeah. I know a lot of people who, who don't have the privilege of sitting here with us. Yeah. You know, um, but rather than get caught in that sort of, I should also be punished. Right. Be like, and you know, this is, this right. is something that I can be grateful for yeah. and try to do service with. Yeah. Good. Thank you. We'll touch on those themes in coming months. Preview. Question. You, it, some things you, you've helped me understand more clearly, or I'm thinking of you. And that had to do with when you were talking about karma and that it's in the moment. Yeah. The story that you were sharing felt outward, characters, people, outward, and that took time, Mm -hmm. but in that moment with the woman, that was one moment, Yeah, and it makes me wonder if that reconciliation or whatever, yeah. Feels and the conflict. It, it feels like it is a moment, even if it's just that, of forgiving ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm asking if that's about right because when we were meditating, the focus, although would shift like a conflict, is trying to find that moment of letting go. 
mm-hmm. which feels like forgiveness. Is mm-hmm. that about right? Yeah. Yeah, it's very lovely uh, the way you're talking about it. Um, I mean, there's a couple things that come up. I'm not sure that I uh, will exactly... I mean, you're not exactly... I don't feel like you're asking a question. I think you're sort of having a, an insight or an experience of something and sort of a sense of something. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, one of the things that I say about my meditation practice is that forgiveness and compassion are my constant companions as I sit. So when the thought comes up or the, you know, and I'm spinning out and then the, when, I, when I realize, oh, I'm just spacing out here, as I come back, there's forgiveness and compassion for myself. So that's that. Um, uh, the, the, you, what you were just saying about that moment, right? And, and um, and it's in that moment. And you, and the thing is that when you see it, when you see that. Oh, the wise response to the wandering mind is not self, you know, uh, anger or judgment. It's forgiveness and compassion. Then that's a something that you take in, and that becomes part of you. You know, and and so that moment then resonates. That moment of insight resonates and becomes part of your practice and part of who you are and start part of your worldview and self-view. And that's what's really transformative about this practice. The, the practice itself doesn't, you know, just meditating and getting calm doesn't transform you. But having clarity about how your mind works and how, what, and seeing with wisdom how suffering arises and how it ends and and then committing to end it <laughs> rather than keep having it arise, right? Saying, oh, you know, if I just keep letting go, if I just keep forgiving myself, that's a better way than I keep judging myself, I keep beating myself up. So that moment uh, can be it can transform us, and that's that's how insight works. That that it it gives this clarity. It's the moment of clarity, as we say. And uh, you know, it's one of the reasons. You know, I've been complaining recently about these things about uh, people using psychedelics as part of their Buddhist path. But it's what people. It's those kind of moments. People have big moments like that when they're on psychedelics a lot of times. I don't think they have the same impact when you're... Because the psychedelic wears off, whereas meditation doesn't wear off in the same way. You're not in an altered state. Um, But the, the last thing I'll say, and this is just kind of going off from what you're talking about, is that because you were talking about the kind of outward part, and like, so karma has... Uh, uh, three different manifests in three different ways through actions, through speech, and through thoughts. And but it 
or that's how we create karma. My, my sense of most of, our, most of us, when, when we talk about like uh, the karmic impact of things we do, my sense is that the emotional, what I call the emotional karma, is what's actually most significant for most of us. Because there's a tendency to think that karma is all about the external. Like, oh, I gave money to a homeless person and then I got a parking place. Or, you know, like there's, like somehow, if I do good things, and you know, I, then I get a job because I, whatever, was, you know, nice to my mother or something. But that, and, and that's the stuff where you can't really make, figure it out. Like, you see people doing, like, bad things, and you think, well, what's the, where's their bad karma? I want to see them suffer, you know. But where we really experience, I, I think most of our karmic life is internally. So that when I do something kind, the payoff is that I feel good. You know, when I'm generous, I feel good. It's not that I win the lottery, you know, it's that, oh, that's a relief. Like, and when I'm angry, the karmic, I mean, you know, there, yeah, if, if I'm yelling at someone, there might, there often is some karmic blowback. But even if I just get angry and don't yell at them, but I'm stewing, there's this karmic emotional impact right away. And so, you know, this is, we can see like our whole like mental patterns as karmic and our emotional patterns as karmic because karma just means there were actions that were taken and these actions can be thoughts that have a residue from them. There's a result from them. So a lot of karma to me is really emotional karma. Uh, and, and that to me uh, sort of explains a lot more in a way than trying to make it all about did I get the job or the car or the girl or something. You know, that it's really much more about moment by moment I'm creating karma and I can feel it. You know, and what what am I creating moment by moment? You know, through my thoughts, through my actions, through my speech. And, you know, oh, there's another imprint. Okay. So that's the kind of motivation to to do the right thing, you know, in a way. Yeah, one more. Yeah. And immediately awakened when confronted with what was the truth. Yeah. And before that, he was unconscious of the truth. And it's that moment when he talks about, he says, oh, I had it, I actually felt it. Yeah. No external thing, no punishment, no king. Yeah. Forced that upon him. Yeah. It happened on his own. Yeah. And it's, that was like the reflection maybe of self-forgiveness then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, obviously, the Buddha saw this potential, but it's like Angulimala, yeah, like you said, like woke up in that moment to it, to seeing his own potential. Um, I mean, it, it can only happen in a moment, right? It can only happen. And and it is kind of, in a way, like that moment of clarity. That 
that's sort of mysterious. Like, why did I get sober that day? You know, what was it about that? When something turns in our mind. And, and I would say, and one of the reasons it came up on the retreat, because I have an exercise that's about going back and looking at your previous actions before you got sober that, that planted seeds. Uh, you know, that, that I would say that, you know, for that moment to happen, there have to have been seeds that were planted. And of course, in Angolimala's case, there, there had been, even though they were long remained dormant. So we need to close. Let us just sit for a moment. Oh, in the spirit of Angulimala, may we forgive ourselves for any harm we may have done. May we forgive others who have harmed us or who have done harm in the world. May we understand that each person, no matter how confused, deluded, has the seeds of awakening within them. And may we help to cultivate those seeds, help ourselves and all beings to find freedom from suffering, to awaken to joy, to love, to peace. Thank you for coming tonight. Um, do uh, I hope you'll come on the 28th uh, and get into living kindness. Otherwise, see you next month. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.